Women make up 70% of the healthcare workforce, but only 20% of its leadership. On her story, we'll explore the careers of bold and influential women from Silicon Valley to Capitol Hill and learn how they've overcome the odds. I'm your host, Sangela Jane, and this is Her Story, a program where we explore what's beyond the glass ceiling. I to welcome Dr. Lauren Powell, President and CEO of the Equitus and Vice President of Health Equity and Community Wellness at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Lauren, thanks for being with us on Her Story. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. So you really have just a remarkable career trajectory, which I'm excited to dig into with you today. Maybe just for some context, could you just give us a little bit of background on exactly what the Equitus does and what you do in the health equity space? Absolutely. First, it, it is such a pleasure to be here. So so thanks for the opportunity and great to connect with you, Sanjula. The Equitist is a niche boutique consulting firm that is focused on everything health equity. Having spent time working in state government, working in federal government, now working in the private sector, I'm acutely aware as to how how committed I think the healthcare industry wants to be to health equity. But when it comes down to operationalizing health equity, people are really stuck. They really just are paralyzed. And the equitist exists to move people from thinking about health equity in theory to actually operationalizing health equity. So putting that into action. That's great. And so we're going to talk about the origins of your career in just a minute. But as you think about from the early days of studying pre-med to what you're doing today to actually building the Equitas to also working in the private sector, do you consider your foray into healthcare leadership accidental or intentional? Wow. I think it was accidentally it was accidentally intentional, perhaps. <laughs> so I, I started off pre-med. I was pre-med and undergrad. I went to Xavier University, Louisiana, and I wanted to be a doctor, but I was also really more interested in health policy. So I thought I needed an MD degree for people to take me seriously and, and wanting to fix the policies that surround how healthcare is like administered. As a child, I had asthma. So I was like in and out of the doctor's office and spent a lot of time just around doctors. And so but I, I always intrinsically felt like there's something wrong with the way we access healthcare and the way that people are treated when they seek healthcare. But I thought I needed an MD degree to, in order to like foray into that area. So I was focused on that primarily for a bit. But then Hurricane Katrina hit my senior year of college, and that was completely devastating to say the least. I think people heard a lot about how Katrina impacted the city and impacted the residents, but much less was discussed about how the hurricane impacted college students. New Orleans in particular was a, a huge college town. And so that really impacted me a lot. And, and what I ended up experiencing was the social determinants of health, though I, I didn't know what to call it at the time, but all of the, the broken infrastructure that led up to not only the natural disaster, but the man-made disaster that happened thereafter are all rooted in racism, but also rooted in the social determinants of health. All those things I didn't exactly know how to name in the moment, but they had a, a deep impact on me. And so I did apply to medical school twice and, and I got rejected twice, which is not uncommon, but somewhere along the path, I realized maybe there's something else I should be doing. And in all that time, I'd been working in, in clinical research. So after I graduated from college, I, I ended up working in uh, clinical research and working as a research assistant, clinical research coordinator, and eventually pursued a path that was kind of in line more with that. And that took me to grad school and it was accidentally intentional, I guess. I I think that I I always had some ideas of how to fix the, the broken healthcare system, but I wasn't quite sure I would be a leader in, in this sense. But you and I actually have a lot of parallels listening to that. So as you know, I actually went to college down at Rice in Houston. And so similarly, even though Hurricane Katrina didn't directly affect Houston in that way, but there were a lot of the conversations around the impact of public health and social determinants. So when you thought about, okay, if I aspire to be a physician, how were you thinking about the bridge between clinical medicine and those you know, social determinants and disparities that you were seeing at that time? Like, Well, first and foremost, I could see that there were there were a lot of questions being asked on the national landscape that like you people could have no context for unless you were like local. For example, why didn't people leave? Right. Like, gosh, you knew a hurricane was coming. Like, why didn't people just pack up and leave? Well, 
if you were local and you actually understood the context and the fabric of New Orleans, you would know that there are a significant number of people who were, who are impoverished and who uh, do not own cars. Right. And that they were clear almost we could we could probably actually overlay like a redlining map and see that those things probably line up like exactly the access to transportation and historic redlining. So the areas that were most hard hit, people were were not able to live their best lives in those areas to begin with. And so what I was already thinking about was why why is this not a factor that's taken into consideration when people are being treated clinically? Why, why aren't people thinking about the fact that it's not just, can I take a, a medicine that will control my blood pressure, but it's the fact that I may live in a neighborhood where I can't even get fresh food and everything I'm eating is in, infused with sodium and is infused with, with lots of other additives that don't give me a fair chance at even being able to fight back against hypertension. And so really wanting to, to think about like, why do we have why don't we have policies that bring those bridges to get like build a bridge out of those two things so as you were thinking about that systems perspective you were also doing this clinical research you've done a, worked in a lot of terrific organizations at what point did you decide okay i'm going to go get a phd more on the population health side of of things mm-hmm. well on the population health side of things It was because of my experience working as a clinical research coordinator. I was a research assistant and a research coordinator at Johns Hopkins, the schools of medicine and public health and uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I worked at the National Cancer Institute at the NIH and really interesting experiences because I was the one actually trying to speak with patients, actually trying to provide informed consent and answer their questions about research protocols and research studies. And I, I got to experience firsthand just how how difficult it is, one, to explain scientific jargon and to help people understand what is a placebo, what does randomization mean? Like, how do you actually put that into layman's terms? But two, I got to feel the the lack of trust in participating in a, in a clinical research study and not just from people of color, but from a lot of different people. And that really led me to want to study that. I wanted to figure out like, what are Is there a way that we can actually build better trust? Is there a way that we can increase the participation of minorities in clinical research? I was rather successful in in recruiting people into my studies. And I think that that had a lot to do with the fact that I was very conversational with people. I actually took time to answer their questions. It was rare to see a research assistant who was a young Black woman. And for some, and for actually quite a few, that was very comforting and actually led them to, to feel like, okay, maybe this is something I could trust. And that is that exactly is, is what led me into working on my uh, PhD. So uh, specifically, I was at the National Cancer Institute and we had a case well, first, let me back up and say, people don't really realize the National Cancer Institute and the NIH, their trials are open to the whole world. So people from all over the world come to to get care at the NIH. And I was overseeing about, I think, 16 or 17 clinical, like phase one, phase one oncology, like clinical trials. And we had a case of a young black male come in and he was about, I guess, 16 or so. And just like was playing basketball, very athletic and was randomly diagnosed with like a very rare form of cancer. And we had a trial that was like perfect for him, but both of his parents had to consent to it because he was a minor. So the parents were were really like, no, like we're not putting our child in a clinical trial. At this time, there was really no other course of treatment. And they were very, very resistant to it and were not okay with it. We called in like a bioethics consult and all of these roles that I just never knew existed. I was so intrigued and also disturbed at the same time, trying to thinking about, you know, what what would his quality of life be, right? Like why why do his parents feel this way? Certainly they have they're warranted to have their feelings, but all of that just really sat very heavily with me. Eventually we were able to to kind of persuade his parents and his parents did give permission. He did go on the trial and I think it was successful. But that entire scenario was like one microcosm of what is happening all the time. And that is what led me to, to apply to graduate school is I, I wanted to study those exact scenarios. I wanted to think harder about 
how to communicate, how to better communicate about clinical trials and how to ultimately exude more trustworthiness out of our healthcare institutions. That, I mean, that's just so powerful. And really what you're describing is this burgeoning field of public health. And I think what's worth noting is, I don't know what your view of it is, but I personally, there aren't a ton of PhDs in really public health areas. It's a relatively newer field. I mean, there are a lot of MPH programs. When you think about the doctor programs, a lot of institutions have created their degree programs with really in the last 10 years or so, some a little bit longer. And so as you think back to, you mentioned the medical school path to then switching over to more of a public health doctoral training, what was that like in terms of, did you have to convince your family and, and explain to them like, this is what this field is? I mean, I know I personally went through that experience where I was like, what is public health or what is a PhD in a public health area? actually thinking about, okay, so how do I not go build a career in this with a formal education training, right? Like, how, how did you make right. that leap? Right. I, I don't know how I made that leap because <laughs> because I I still find myself trying to, trying to pull the words together to explain to my family, like, what I do. I mean, from a training perspective, I think a PhD – is, is a very different, you're absolutely right. So first of all, I should say, I was looking for programs. I was just kind of like, just skimming and kind of trying to see what's out here because I was interested in the intersection between like clinical research and population health. But most of those programs that exist are for clinicians. They're for people who have already are a nurse or are a physician's assistant or are an actual physician. There were very few programs that are actually for someone who isn't already have a clinical degree or credential. So those are rare. You're absolutely right. And But I'm, I'm grateful for the, the PhD side of my training, and, and I'm sure we can come back to that discussion. But I think making the leap between medicine, which is something that people like can readily understand, to a PhD, which is a degree that's recognized, but people don't really quite have an idea of like, what do you do with that? To then like public health, which was something that I, quite frankly, even though I was living through a, a sort of a public health emergency in, in Katrina, I didn't really have a frame of reference for what public health really was until I started having more exposure when I was at Hopkins and I would like talk to other people, talk to, to students and go to lectures and just like drop in and hear about things. I was like, wow, this is a whole different career path than I knew about. And, and I think that's, Unfortunate, and I hope that that's changing. I hope that with more leaders who are Black and Brown and who are women and who are from Native communities and who are from the LGBTQ plus community, from the disability community, I hope that we're changing the face of what people see public health to be and also opening up the eyes and, and the realization for for younger people that like this is a this is a legitimate career path that you can travel down. I did not realize that. So it took some of that exposure, and but I think... I, I did not think in pursuing my PhD that I would be where I am now. I, I did not quite know where I would end up. I knew that this was a topic that I was interested in. I knew very early on that I did not want to be a researcher, an academic researcher, even though every one of my programs tried to get me to be. <laughs> uh, yep, I had a similar experience. <laughs> I'm sure you can relate. I knew very. I knew as soon as I entered academia was not for me. I actually thought I would go back and work in government, which I did, state government. But I actually thought I would go work in federal government, return to federal government after this, after my PhD, which I which I did not. But I think I'm still actually pulling my family along the journey with me and with each role, perhaps providing more clarity as to what it is that I actually do. Yeah. No, well, thank you for sharing that because in many ways that's one of the the core reasons that we we started the show. Her story was to start highlighting non-traditional isn't the right word, but these other career paths and routes that maybe aren't as mainstream for lack of a better word because these are these other opportunities and, and burgeoning fields. So I guess with that, then back to terminology for a bit. So you have been navigating these different roles at the intersection of clinical medicine and public health, and now you're in this health equity space and thinking about social determinants. I mean, there's, a, there's a whole lot of things happening there. How do you think about health equity? How do you define that? Yeah. Very simply put, I think health equity is ensuring that everyone can live their best life. That's, that's just, if I had to explain it to, in layman's terms, to someone who had no context or reference to public health, I would say that. That means ensuring that people have 
access to jobs, that people can pay their bills, that they can live in stable and clean housing, that they have access to, to, to food that is nutritious, that they can experience peace and joy and have equilibrium in, in your mental health and and access to a doctor when you need one and, and, and provision of the best care when you go to seek to seek a doctor's help. I mean, I think very simply put, what we're aiming for is to ensure that the people who have the privilege to to make sure that they're living their best life, that that the people who don't have those resources can can have that same ability, that we can all live our very best life. I love that. It's it's very intuitive and that's uh, not a traditional definition that you would hear uh, in the industry today. And so when you think about from graduate school then, you were doing your research in this space, you were trying to raise awareness. If I got your trajectory correct, then you went to the um, Virginia Department of Health after grad school. Is that right? Yeah. So so after my PhD, well, a little, there's a little extra thing in there in between. So after my PhD, this is when my family was like, okay, you really need to be done with school. After my, I was finishing my PhD and I said, I started researching like where I'm a researcher period. So I started researching, what am I going to do after this? It was like a summer ahead of me writing my dissertation. I was, I was in the middle of writing it a summer before I would defend it really. And I said, what am I going to do when I graduate? I started researching. I started doing informational interviews, reaching out to companies, trying to figure out where could I fit in. And this is the interesting thing, Sanjula, because my degree was so different and so new that at the time people were like, we don't really know. So it's a PhD, which is great. That tells us you're like a critical thinker and stuff. But if you wanted to, let's say, come into pharma, you'd still have to do like a postdoc or something because like we, you, you've left the work world and so you don't have as much managerial experience. And so all these things sort of came together and I was like, this doesn't really sound like what I had in mind. It's it's not really exactly what I think I was infused with these skills to do just yet. So I had this lingering, I told you I had this lingering interest in policy. So I said, I'm not gonna apply to any jobs. I'm not gonna apply to any postdocs. I'm going to apply to one graduate school and uh, master's in policy, and that's it. And if I, if I don't get in, I'll figure out what to do after that. But if I don't get in, I don't get in. This is when my family was like, okay, you're doing the most now. Like, <laughs> you have the highest degree you could possibly get, and you want another one? Well, I have this interest in policy, and like, I just don't think I'm done yet. So applied to Harvard, Kennedy School of Government. I applied for a mid-careers master's in public administration, which is specifically for people who've already worked a portion of their career and are wanting to either pivot or or add a new skill or learn something deeper. And I applied to that. And I'm so blessed and so grateful that I got in because I literally didn't have anything, anything else planned. I didn't apply to any other schools. I mean, my my academic mentor and advisor was just like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, I am. I, th- I think this is it. So thank God I got in. But so in between my PhD and going to work for the Commonwealth of Virginia, I did a master's in public administration at Harvard. And then from there is when I, I went to go work as the director of the Office of Health Equity. Wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack within that. For, for to, to start, I mean, the Kennedy School is by far one of the, the best programs and policy. So kudos to you on that. But also kudos to you on going with your gut. And, and in many ways, I can relate to that that fact of where do you fit coming out of a PhD training? If you you know don't do the postdoc, do, don't do the traditional bench sciences route, or you don't go in academia, you don't like where do you go within that? And so I think there's a lot to be said about that process of researching options and kind of creating your own path that maybe didn't exist to find where you fit. So curious, did that influence your decision to get the policy degree or was it purely you chasing after just the the, the love for policy? It definitely did influence. I mean, I think that there is a, a per, there was a perception. I hope that we're starting to change that. But there was certainly a perception that like academic, an academic degree only transfers academic skills. But but an academic degree transfers life skills, right? Critical thinking is a life skill. Analysis and research is is something that can be applied to any industry you go into. So understanding data and how to collect data and how to analyze data, how to report on data, how to translate data for different audiences, 
that is a translatable skill. And I think I have really learned about myself and what I've really learned about navigating this industry is like there there is a way to position and brand yourself that places your skills ahead of like just sort of the degrees you have in a sense. Like the degrees give you credentialing, but it is the skills that are transferable. That's so important because I think we often fall in this trap of it's like a checklist, right? You go get these degrees, but it's really what you make of it and, and how you position it exactly to your point. So with that said, so you graduated from the Kennedy School. How did you land in uh, state government from there? Sajula, everything is a story. So I I graduated from the Kennedy School. It was It was so exciting. And I have to say, I think that they Sometimes when you're graduating from Ivy League schools, I feel and this is like not an experience I've ever had. So I should make it clear. I've been at an HBCU, a state school and an, and an Ivy League school, all of which are very different experiences. I so appreciate each one of them because they have they have each contributed to molding me into who I am today. And, and I think makes me very, very comfortable being in lots of different scenarios around lots of different types of people. But I was I graduated and I I think like around that time really they start to prepare you and and sometimes I may I think they make you feel like you're leaving Harvard like everyone's going to want to hire you. Well, that may be the case for white men. Let's just be honest and clear. That may be the case for white men, but I'm still um a black woman and I still have to compete for for everything that I go after. So I did not necessarily find that to be the case for myself or for my colleagues who were people of color who graduated either. And I still had to very much compete for the positions I was going after. So I actually applied for positions in lots of different places. I applied and made it to like a first round of interviews or something for a couple of consulting firms like BCG and the, the top consulting firms. I A social impact consulting firm, I, I also made it to a couple rounds into that. And and I was I found them to be interesting, but not motivating. Still not, not quite what I thought I would be doing. I applied for a couple of different states and actually had a couple of interviews for states at, in Massachusetts in particular, I applied for some positions there. And then I applied for a position in Virginia. And I put it out there, it was an office of health equity. I don't remember how I found it, but I was very serious about applying for jobs and networking at this time. And I also had a very short stint of consulting right after I graduated from the Kennedy School. So I was kind of doing that and applying for jobs at the same time. And the Equitus didn't exist then. So it was just like me side hustling, independent, trying to make it (laughs) until my next thing. And so I applied for all these positions. They all got whittled down eventually. And I went out of the country for a a week or so with, with classmates. We went on a trip to Nigeria, which was beautiful. I was in Nigeria and Charlottesville happened. So I was actually watching the coverage of Charlottesville when we were in Nigeria, and we'd actually just come from, it's the like gate of no return. So it's the area where the transatlantic slave trade, like it's one of the points, one of the ports of the transatlantic slave trade. Now, the juxtaposition of the fact that I just come from, in the same day, I just come from a place that essentially originated slavery. And I'm getting... CNN news alerts about Charlottesville, tiki torches and white supremacists in the same day. And this is in Virginia. So I was like, let me withdraw my application from Virginia because I, that's, I, that's not my ministry, but I didn't. And, and they, they reached out once I got back, they reached out and said, we would like to talk to you. And I said, okay, well, we can talk. I'm not going to make any promises, but we can talk. I went in for, you know, an interview. I did a couple of phone interviews. Then I went in for an in-person interview and they were like, we want to hire you. Okay, I guess I'm going to Virginia. So that's what I was very much like, what should I be doing this? This is a cradle of the Confederacy. It is not lost on me. The the history that is here, the, the ways that Virginia has had a very significant influence historically on the codifying of race, on slavery. There were more millionaires per capita at the height of slavery in Virginia than anywhere else in the country. So that is a deep-seated history that that I I really had to think, like, should I do this? But ultimately, I said, yes, I should do this. Because 
one, they don't know who I am and they don't know what I'm going to bring to this role. But two, isn't this what my ancestors died for? Isn't, isn't this what they would have wanted? Isn't this their wildest dreams? And so I said, yes. And I moved to Virginia and I'm still in Virginia. I bought a house in Virginia. So I'm here for, I'm here for a while to, to shake things up. Wow. I mean, that's just incredible where you went from saying, well, I'm going to withdraw my application to actually leading, taking charge of the situation in many ways. So I know we could spend a whole hour just on this, but maybe just very quickly tell us a little bit about what it was like then actually operationalizing some of this change from within, basically on the heels of all these national and state events that were happening at the time. Yes, there were so many events that were happening happening at that time and in events within state government that were very significant as well. And it was challenging and also rewarding at the same time. It was challenging for me being young and a new leader, right? Recognizing that leadership, all the courses and, and all of the, the books, the everything you want to read about leadership is wonderful until you actually have to do it, right? And then you have to figure out what kind of leader am I? How do I as a, I think I was like, very, I was like 33 or something when I started in this position. The youngest leader of this office, first Black woman with a PhD, everyone before me had had an MD or, no, they'd all had MDs. So I I had, I felt like I had a lot to prove, but I also had a lot to, to learn about myself. How to navigate working with, working as a supervisor over people who were old enough to be like my parents how to work also as a supervisor with people who were like my same age, right? How to still be the personable leader that I am while still creating boundaries for discipline and, and boundaries, right? That to hold people accountable. So I think that was that was one thing that I had to navigate. I think the other was really helping people understand what health equity actually is. I spent so much of my of my time and so much of my role was focused on defining health equity, helping people understand this is what health equity is, this is what it isn't. Racism and addressing racism is a core and fundamental requirement for health equity work, right? If, if you want to skip around and if you want to, to walk around the perimeter of that and you don't want to, to speak about it head on and not just speak about it, but actually work to deconstruct it, you are not doing health equity work. So I think that, I think, navigating spaces where I was often the only Black person in a room and in leadership tables, the only Black woman in leadership spaces, and also navigating when to hold them and when to fold them, right? I am one person. And to think that only one person could completely intercept a system that was built on um, oppression that was built on white supremacy, that was built to work exclusively really for white men is, is flawed, right? Like I do think one person can make a difference. However, I'm very clear on the fact, and because of this experience, I'm very clear on the fact that it cannot only be one person, right? It has to, you have to have a movement and you have to have support and you have to have others, others to see that this is an important cause to champion. Otherwise, those systems that continue to grind and work perfectly will grind you up in the process as well. I mean, I think a lot of what you're describing is a common challenge that a lot of leaders face, right? Where it's you could have all these ideas and maybe know how to fix the the problem, so to speak, but you really – it's about execution. It's about education and bringing people along and you got to start there. And so how, you may have this wish list and agenda of all the things you want to do and, and know it'll make the difference, but you may only get one of those things done because it's the broader movement Absolutely. underlying it. We did get a lot done like during that time. We hosted the state's first – LGBTQ plus health equity symposium. We did a health equity conference and think tank and community conversations and really pushing the agency to get outside of the four walls of, of, of their building. So absolutely, you're right. Yeah. How did you, I mean, you are just so confident about and realistic about the bounds of what you can and cannot do given the environment and the, and the point of time. But to your point, I mean, you were the first of many in these organizations how did you keep yourself going through that, not seeing others around you that either look like you or thinking like you? I mean, just uh, mentally or emotionally, what was that like? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. And I, I try to stop and think about this more because I'm actually asked this quite quite often and I don't always feel like I have the best answer for it, but I've tried to think about it more. And the reality is for me, the the places that I am are, are where in the positions that I have are the things that I do, but they're not who I am, right? They, they are in... They are a part of who I am, but they're not solely who I am. So it's very important for me to keep the balance of having other things to do outside of just my my nine to five, keeping a circle of very trusted confidants around me who will hold me accountable and will tell me if I'm if I'm doing too much, if I'm working too hard, if I'm going down the wrong path. That's so important to me. But also finding allyship and finding support where I can. Right. Even in, in the most unlikely scenarios, there are still people who, who you can find who will support your cause and who will support you and who want to who, who want to be allied with you for whatever reason. Right. Sometimes it's for selfish reasons because it might make them look good. But nonetheless, the support I, I have found support in unlikely places in, in all of the positions that I have been in. And that has also kept me going. Right. That. Sometimes the people who I thought were in opposition of me, not they weren't always. They were sometimes supportive of me in, in different rooms that I didn't know of. And so that has kept me going too. I think I'll be realistic though. It can be lonely, right? Though the phrase, it's lonely at the top. It's not just a phrase, like it's it's real. Because when you're facing certain challenges at, at, a, at a level, at a certain level of leadership, you can't talk to just anybody about it because there's so much context to it that only like this has to be leader to leader, right? Like boss to boss, we have to talk about this. So so I keep networks of people in leadership positions in lots of different industries, because at the end of the day, we may, we may not all be working on the exact same topic, but we face the same challenges. And that has helped me. And then finding mentors outside of my workplace, finding mentors outside of my industry, and, and talking to those who have, blazed a trail much further ahead than than where I am at this point definitely keeps me going too. I think what's really fascinating about your background is you've really seen a lot of these public health and health equity issues from multiple vantage points, right? So you've seen it from the government, you've seen it from small organizations, you've seen it from large private sector um, organizations, you've seen all of it. What are some of the, I guess, commonalities that you've seen from government to education to nonprofits to some of the unique differences and particularly now in your current role at, you know, Takeda, a really large multinational pharmaceutical company, like that's a big contrast to where you did some of the work that you did at the state government level. So just talk a little bit about some of those nuances. Yeah, great question. What I think all these institutions have in common is I think a, fr- a fragility, a bit of a fragility around recognizing how racism is so such a significant like factor in in health equity work. I think that across the board, there's no shortage of the desire to do good. I think everyone intrinsically, there's a small percentage of people, but they're who don't, right? But but they're overall, like the majority of people do want to do good. The majority of workplaces want to do good. The majority of healthcare organizations want to do good. But to not recognize and to not call out and to not stand up and work to actively deconstruct the impacts of racism in all of these systems is to sabotage your desire to do good. Right. So I that is something that I see across the board. Right. I think that there are some organizations that are slightly further along than others and maybe more progressive in thinking and policies. But by and large, the hesitancy and the just the fragility, there's really no other word for it around talking about the impacts of racism, talking about the impacts of other forms of oppression as well is something that these systems and these organizations are very uncomfortable with. And, and specifically how that ties directly to health equity. We can think about the critical race theory debate that's happening nationally right now, right? That that somehow we should just forget about the past, that it doesn't have any bearing on where we are now. But, but that is totally untrue. That even goes against what America sees as being so important to our American history, right? So I think that that's something, that is a form of resistance that I think 
I have to continue to, I don't want to say get used to, but, but realistically recognize that that's going to constantly be a barrier. I think underlying a lot of what you say is this idea that is in all industries, but I think even in healthcare, we're really bad students of history, right? And I actually, history was my least favorite subject. In some ways, the more that you understand about being a researcher myself too, right? You think about the trends and over time, what, what the progression has been, but the more you understand the context, the the more insight you have to be able to think about that go forward change and what is possible and not. And so I know COVID, nationally we've been talking about this, played a big role in highlighting a lot of these disparities and gaps that we've been seeing for many years and brought a lot of that to the forefront. And that played a big role in inspiring the formation of the Equitist. So tell us a little bit about, okay, so you've been leading this tremendous career, operationalizing this change, grassroots up through various organizations, secure a job, really busy at a multinational group to then saying, I'm going to also start my own organization on top of everything else you're already doing. So what inspired the formation of the Equitist? It's the epitome of doing too much, isn't it, Sandula? I know it is. So I, I've known for a little while, I think even while I was at Harvard, because I told you right after, right after Harvard, I had a short stint of consult, consulting. And I it was like real not organized and unofficial. And I only had like one client, which was really great. But I I knew, I've known for a while that I have an interest in eventually working for myself. And it was just a matter of figuring out like, when would that happen? So I didn't think it would happen this soon. I'll say that first and foremost. <laughs> but at the height of, at the beginning of COVID, I should say, I was in a role that was not directly serving in public health. So I was actually at uh, Time's Up. So I was working for Time's Up Healthcare. And I was a little like, oh, like why, what is with this timing, right? Like I just left a position where I would have been like right at the helm and like helping to make decisions and, and all of that. And this is a moment literally that I feel like I have trained for from population health to policy, to oper- operationalizing health equity on the ground, to working with communities, I was really sad, quite frankly, about where, like, how could it be that I was not, and I was, I was glad to still be at Time's Up, but how could it be that I wasn't where I thought I should have been for this, like, once in a lifetime emergency that I could have really helped with? So at the onset, I knew that this was going to be a really big thing. This is going to disproportionately impact communities of color, that public health leaders, are going to need help as states were declaring emergency and that ultimately they did not know because I just worked in state government and then there was no real guidance from the federal government. This was going to fall in the hands of states. And that because I just worked in state government and specifically at a health department, I knew people aren't going to know how to operationalize health equity in this moment. So I said, I'm going to start my company. My boyfriend helped me help me do the paperwork. He is a serial entrepreneur. So thank God that he knew how to do everything real quickly. Cause I was like, I don't know. I just might have a title. That's all I can give you. So we put we put the paperwork together. And two weeks later, I got a call from a cabinet member in the governor's office in the Commonwealth of Virginia saying, like, we need your help. We need your help with health equity. We need your help. And I was like, okay. Just so happens, I've just formed a new company and you can be my first client. So that's how it started. And and we have been working to literally operationalize, as in at the height of COVID, worked with the Department of Emergency Management and several other agencies in Virginia to move masks and hand sanitizers to the doorsteps of the people who need it the most. We distributed over a million masks, over 900,000 bottles of hand sanitizer across the Commonwealth to the doorstep, not asking people to come out to an event, not just putting it somewhere and just whosoever shall come, not shipping things to localities that we're just most comfortable with, but figuring out using data, where are those pockets where people cannot socially distance, where Um, There are multiple people living in a household where there are perhaps multiple underlying chronic conditions in in communities and bringing those resources to their doorstep. So been working with them for actually the duration pretty much of the emergency is we're still working on things, but now have also shifted into working with specific clients to help operationalize and and, um, teach 
people what health equity actually is, and then how to think about infusing that into your organization. How do you do that in a legitimate and also sustainable way? Wow, that is just incredible. I mean, most people during a crisis would say it's too risky to, to go off and, and do all these new things, but you just embraced the opportunity and thank you for doing that. I mean, that's a, it's a really important cause and has great impact for our communities. I guess what's unique about your story in many ways is you're a founder and a lot of entrepreneurs, when they go off to create their initiatives, whether they're co-founding or founding solo, is this idea of going in full full force, right? You have to step away from a job or you say, I'm taking on this big risk, go full on, go in the deep end here. And there is this new, I don't know if it's a full on movement, but this idea that you don't, you can kind of wear multiple hats and, and do a lot of things. And so it's so common now for people to be investors and founders and, and teachers, right? Like they, they have multiple roles, which I think is a really interesting uh, dynamic shaping up. What was the thought process for you in terms of you hit this moment that was your calling, right? These are all the things that you were seeing or working towards where you said you always knew you wanted to eventually have your own consulting arm or whatever it may be, but saying that I'm going to do this on top of what I was already doing, like in terms of taking a step back, like how did you think about that? I was really very fortunate working at Times of Healthcare, which for your audience is an organization that is, that is focused on equity for women in the workplace. and. Working at an organization like that was was really divine timing, quite frankly, for the moment, because I went to our leadership and, and said, I'm a former state health official. I'm a nationally recognized public health leader. People are going to need my help in this moment. And I need to know if if I if it's okay for me to consult, like if it's okay for me to help people in this moment. And they said yes, which I am just so grateful for and really that helped set the the precedence and the foundation for me to be able to do that, to be able to to do just as you said, like not have to walk away from something altogether to explore my passion. And I I think what you said is right on point that I hope this is more of a movement that people can recognize when I'm able to be, and I, by the way, I was very honest and transparent about this with Takeda as well. This was part of my negotiation. And I said, it's important to me that I'm able to continue to do this because that's that's the only way I can bring my best self to this role and bring my entire self to this role, which you that's what you want, right? So I I think that and I and I should also point out, I recognize that's a point of privilege, right? Everyone, everyone is not at that point in their career. And that is a, a point of privilege for me. And I recognize that. But I also think I hope that this will create more of a landscape where employers can recognize you you get your best employee when they can tell you everything that they're interested in and everything that they're doing. So there's that, but I think balancing has is is hard. It's really hard. Like and people keep asking me, when are you, are the the Equitus is going to blow up? Like are you are you going to leave Takeda? Like I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I really, really enjoy my role at Takeda. And at the same time, I'm excited about the Equitus. I want it to grow. It doesn't have to be just me making it grow. I do have a small team of people and I do have a managing director and a friend who, well, she's now a friend. I didn't know her like a year ago, a year and a half ago or so, but literally tracked me down and said, I'm going to help you build this. And and she has stood by and like really done that. So the managing director who's, who's Aaron Dowell, but she has is such great support. So I do have a very small team, but as we expand and get more opportunities, like I definitely want the Equitus to ramp up. And I want to be in the position where once the Equitus is to a point grossing a certain dollar amount that I'm comfortable with, then, then perhaps I'll step over. But I don't actually feel like I have to be the only one in charge. And I think it's it's a matter of mindset as well for some entrepreneurs. And by the way, I should say I never entrepreneurship scares me and it still does like stepping away to do something 100% that is like not tied to an institution that's been around that I can count on my check coming every two weeks, whatever is that's scary to me. That's and that's really because I have not seen that demonstrated or I've not, I've not seen anyone really, really close to me operationalize that but my boyfriend's a serial entrepreneur. And so I've gotten to see it up close and I've become a little bit more comfortable with it, but not comfortable enough to make it 100% just yet. 
Well, uh, one thing that we don't have to talk about it today, but I do think that there are a lot of parallels between those with PhD academic training and having this entrepreneurial fire. I mean, there are a lot of parallels when you think about the research process too. So I think you have a lot of that innate to you. <laughs> Very much so. Thank you. Thank That makes me feel better. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's just such a powerful reminder though. This I don't know if it's a gender thing, but I do know at least in my my own world and network on talking to mentors, it's very common to see a lot of male entrepreneurs dabble in multiple organizations, multiple roles. And I and I think there are a lot of women that I mentor also, and I've gone through this myself, where it's like you can have all these passion and interest areas, and we often try to find one organization or one role to try to satisfy all of that, but really that doesn't have to be the case. And so in some ways, I think your story is a reminder that we don't have to limit ourselves there. We can get really creative about finding these different outlets and leadership really is about how deep to go and where and building the teams around you to to carry out those visions. So thank you for sharing that. I guess as you think about, I have my view of this, but do you think about your career arc and the confidence and your ability to trailblaze for this ambiguous, undefined career arc that isn't a common you know path that a lot of people follow? What do you think has given you your edge in your career? I think it's a God-given ability. I think my talents come from God. And I stay close to God and I stay, I stay close to my faith. I also stay close to my ancestors. And I think that the, the wisdom and, and the ways that so many in my family who've, who've passed away have lived their lives continues to guide me. I think my personal experience with, with loss, like unnecessary loss because of health inequities, because of health disparities, because of racism, like they are both, they're double-edged sword. They're both like the thorn on my side and, and like the the most like hurtful source of pain. But it's also what motivates me and keeps me going because I don't want other families to experience the, the losses that I have. I don't want other communities to be with this void of, of like wisdom and knowledge and, and love that they should have from people who passed away from conditions that could have been managed, from, from better care that they could have received, from a better life that they could have lived if, if we'd actually worked to create that for them. And then I also think, I don't, it's, it's actually just a part of who I am, quite honestly. Like it's, it's just a part of my DNA. I can't explain it. I do know that this is my purpose. Like I'm crystal clear on that. And it is what wakes me up in the morning and it gets me fired up. I guess as you think back to the early days of your career, is there something that you believed early on, whether it was told to you by a mentor or family member or just through experience that you no longer believe? I think that the idea somehow that you like almost can't have it all I, I still battle with myself on that sometimes, but I really overwhelmingly don't believe that. And that's because I have, I, I see, I have very clear examples of the fact that you can have it all. And, and I guess in addition to that, I would say there was an academic advisor once who saw my, my resume and, and I would constantly want to be going after doing different things, like doing different fellowships and just, I've always done things that interest me and I've, I've not done them for accolades sake. I've just done them because they're interesting to me. And there was an academic advisor who said I was presenting some other opportunity and she was like, why do you, you don't need to keep doing things to pad your resume. Like, why do you, why do you want to do X, Y, and Z? You, you've done enough things. And I, I was just so disturbed by that and so hurt by that. And I don't believe in padding resumes. Like, I don't believe in that. I believe in pursuing the things that interest you. And oftentimes that means other people will not understand. And it's really not your business to understand. It's not my business to have to explain it to you. It's just what I'm interested in. And so I don't believe that. And I don't tell other people that. I do not tell aspiring uh, public health leaders, aspiring health equity leaders, aspiring med students. I don't. I would never tell anyone that because I know how that feels, and and it can be very demoralizing. That I don't go after things just for the sake of merit. I go after things because they're important and, and interesting to me. Well, I think your career has just embodied exactly that spirit. So thank you for really following your heart and your passion for for all of what you're doing, despite what you know others may have told you along the way. 
I guess we'll we'll wrap with one final question. I know you have many more chapters of your book to write and really excited to continue to track your career and see where the equitus and everything else that you do takes you. But what would be the title of your autobiography? Oh my gosh, Sandula, I still don't have the best answer for this. But <laughs> I told you I'd give you a trick question here, Lauren. <laughs> I know. I'm going to stick with my gut and I'm going to say hustle hard because that that is what I have always done. I people don't agree. we could have so many other chapters of this discussion because what people also don't know is like I have worked in so many places. I have been working since I was honestly, probably like 13. And I have just been hustling ever since then. I've worked at every retail place you can imagine. I've worked in restaurants. I've I've had multiple jobs, three jobs at once to graduate from college, like multiple jobs when I had a full-time job. So hustle, like I'm I'm hustling, but hustling for a purpose. And, and that I'm hustling because I hope that in the future, future generations won't have to hustle as hard as I am. Oh, that that's so well said and so beautiful. You are such an inspiration, Lauren. Thank you so much for being so candid and being so open about sharing your story and really excited to see uh, what's next for you. Thanks for being with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Her Story is a podcast produced by Think Medium. For more leadership stories from inspiring women across healthcare, tune in every Wednesday. Please subscribe to Her Story on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. You can also view Her Story episodes in video and access exclusive content on our website at thinkmedium.com. Be sure to rate and review Her Story so we can continue bringing you insights from influential women across the country. If you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate you spreading the word to your friends, family, colleagues, and mentors who might be interested. For questions and suggestions, please contact us at herstory at thinkmedium.com. Thanks for listening.